0: What a wonderful way um, to begin the new year, but to come together and worship our Lord and Savior. Amen? So for the past few weeks, Mark has been uh, preaching on the Christ incarnation, God the Son becoming a human being, and many of the implications of Jesus as uh, the God-man And obviously, that's a timely topic during the Christmas season when Christians around the world celebrate the birth of Christ. Even the unbelieving world, to a large extent, will acknowledge the birth of Jesus, although they would never um, affirm that he is, in fact, God. And I've heard people in the media, heard people on, or seen people on social platforms, people at Uh, the place where I work, make references to Baby Jesus, and I've seen various images of Baby Jesus. Baby Jesus in the manger, surrounded by sheep and goats. Baby Jesus on Mary's lap. Baby Jesus in a wooden cutout or an inflatable manger seen on people's front lawn. The world's okay with Baby Jesus. He's kind of, uh, you know, he's kind of cute. He's safe. Baby Jesus isn't troublesome. He doesn't instill fear in anyone. He's non-threatening. He doesn't challenge. Doesn't make any demands. Baby Jesus certainly doesn't judge. He doesn't mess with anyone. He's just baby Jesus lying in a manger because there was no room at the inn. So people generally aren't uncomfortable with, or they don't have a problem with baby Jesus. But the problem is, he doesn't stay a baby. Jesus grows up. Jesus becomes a man. And that's when the world starts having problems with Jesus. That's when People in the first century, Palestine, had problems with Jesus. And that's when people today have a problem with Jesus, the Jesus who's grown up, Jesus, the man in his three year public ministry. Jesus who performs miracles, who heals, who feeds the 5,000. Jesus who walks on water and raises people from the dead. Jesus who pronounces woes on the Pharisees and commands people to repent and stop sinning. Jesus who claims to be the Son of God, who claims to be one with the Father. Jesus who claims to be the I am who existed before time, totally self-sufficient within the Trinity, needing nothing. Jesus, through whom all things were created by him and for him, and who sustains, directs, and holds all things together. Jesus, who spoke more about hell than he did about heaven, who lived a perfect, sinless life, who suffered and died on the cross. Taking the full wrath of God against sin upon himself in the place of miserable, undeserving sinners like you and I. Jesus, who died, then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, victorious over sin, Satan, and death, so that those who place their trust in him and his sacrificial death on the cross to atone for their sin would be restored to saving relationship with God, granted eternal life, and adopted into his family. Jesus, the Lord and Savior, who is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for the saints. That's the Jesus that the world is uncomfortable with. Not baby Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, the incarnate God, the Son that's revealed in Scripture, makes people uncomfortable. They are threatened by him. They want nothing to do with a grown-up biblical Jesus. Why couldn't he just stay a baby? But he doesn't stay a helpless, non-threatening baby. So what the world does, and in many cases what professing evangelical churches and believers do, is they pick and choose events from the life of Jesus. They pick and choose the attributes and character traits of Jesus. They pick and choose the words of Jesus that they're okay with. And they create a Jesus they can be comfortable with, a non-threatening, non-demanding, soft, passive, sentimental And in the words of Vadi Bakum, a a sissified Jesus. What happens is they end up with a sissified idol, not the Jesus of the Bible. Well, the Jesus who is revealed in Scripture, he's coming again. And he's not coming as a baby in a manger. And his return will be very different from his incarnation 2,000 years ago. The Apostle John is given the vision of Christ's return in the book of Revelation. His return takes place at the end of the Great Tribulation, after God's judgment has been poured out on the earth in many different forms and degrees. takes place after the believing dead have been raised And the church has been raptured to be with Christ. The beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, Satan's angels have had their influence in the world and their time is about to come to an end. His coming takes place on the eve of the battle of Armageddon, what we call the battle of Armageddon, the great day of God the Almighty. It's what? all of Revelation has been leading up to, and the culmination of redemptive history is about to take place. Christ is returning to establish his kingdom on earth, the kingdom promised him by the Father. Jesus is coming, and his return should be cause for rejoicing amongst believers, but it will undoubtedly be a cause for overwhelming terror to those who continue in unbelief. if you have your Bibles, please turn to Revelation 19, 11 through 16 and follow along as I read the text. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe, and on his right thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the Jesus that's coming again. That's the Jesus revealed in Scripture. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation of yourself. Thank you for the record of your acts in ages past. And thank you for your revelation of future events and the promise that Christ will return. Pray, pray that you would apply the word to our hearts to transform us, to make us more like Christ, to prepare us to be in your presence. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this is the vision <clears throat> that John is given of Christ's return, his return in power and glory. First of all, John says, I saw heaven open. Well, I don't know what in the world must that have looked like. Uh, I can only imagine, but it must have been this overwhelming and probably terrifying sight for John, something nobody had ever seen before, nobody had ever experienced, the sky literally being ripped or torn open and peeled back to reveal this mighty horse standing there, possibly charging out of heaven toward the earth. And sitting astride the horse is the final glorious revelation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke of his return in Matthew 24, 27 through 31. He said, for as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. to the other. That's what John is witnessing. He's witnessing what every believer should be praying for and longing for, the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to bring true, real, and lasting justice, to right all wrongs, to punish all evil, to establish his kingdom, and to rule and reign on the earth. We should all be anticipating that and praying for it and longing for it. Jesus is coming. And in our text this morning, we see four characteristics that will distinguish His coming. First of all, He comes in righteousness in verses 11 and 12. He comes in glory in verses 12 and 13. He comes with grace in verse 14, and He comes in victory in verses 15 and 16. First of all, Jesus is coming, and he's coming in righteousness. What John is witnessing, certainly not the baby Jesus of the incarnation or the first advent, he's no longer the gentle and lowly Jesus. He's no longer the suffering servant He's not the Jesus humble and mounted on a donkey, as predicted in Zechariah 9.9 and fulfilled in Christ's entry into Jerusalem. And the significance of that, the significance of Jesus riding on a donkey during his first advent was that rulers or leaders in ancient Middle Eastern culture rode donkeys or young colts to symbolize or to communicate That they were coming in peace. And that was certainly true of Christ's mission when he first came to earth. He came to make peace between God and man, making peace through his death on the cross for everyone who would believe in him. But now, he's not returning on a donkey because he's not coming in peace he's returning on a white horse, a war horse. The white horse was ridden by conquering Roman generals who had been victorious in battle, and they would would triumphantly ride through the streets of Rome proclaiming victory over their enemies. And the white horse also symbolized the righteous and holy character of the rider. And... uh, That was only symbolic and not the reality in regards to those ancient conquering generals who were sinful and wicked men. But it is the reality of who Christ was, who Christ is. Christ is absolutely and infinitely holy. He is perfect in righteousness. He's untainted and unblemished by any sin. This is the Christ who is returning, the holy, righteous, sinless, sovereign conquering king mounted on a white horse some people see this vision of Jesus riding out of heaven on a white horse as only symbolic and not a physical reality but John John is describing what he's seeing and he doesn't say it was like a white horse or as a white horse what he's describing is the actual physical reality of what's taking place but whether that horse is symbolic or or real doesn't change the fact that Christ is coming again. When he comes, we'll find out whether or not that horse is real or just symbolic. We'll all see it. Now, the next thing that John says in his description of the glorious and what will be for the enemies of Christ, his terrifying return, he says, the one sitting on it, the one sitting on the white horse, is called faithful and true. And John referred to Jesus earlier in the book uh, book of Revelation as uh, the faithful and true witness in Revelation 3.14. And that he is faithful and true is related to his righteousness. He is faithful and true because he is righteous. Jesus God the Son is faithful and true and faithfulness can be defined as God's unchanging constancy and firmness particularly in relationship to his people he is constant and firm in keeping his promises so we can trust him and God likewise is unchangeable in his moral and ethical nature and this unchangeableness scripture often connects with God's goodness and mercy and also with his constancy in keeping his covenant promises. That's what's meant by the faithfulness of God. And there are so many scriptures that speak of God's faithfulness. Psalm 33, 4, For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. Psalm 36, 5, your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Lamentations 3, 23 through 24, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. And Hebrews 10.23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. He is faithful. And then clearly related to God's righteousness and faithfulness is the fact that he is true and he is the source of all truth. Christ is true, God is true, his words are true words, his thoughts are true thoughts, his grace, mercy, and love are true grace, mercy, and love, and his judgment is true judgment. There is absolutely no falsehood or deceit in God, he is the source of all that is true. God never lies, Jesus never lies. 2 Samuel 7, 28 says, and now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. Psalm 19, 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus can only speak what is true because his words are true, his promises are true, and he is faithful to do whatever he has promised. He must fulfill his promises or Jesus would be a liar. He's faithful to fulfill all the plans, purposes, and promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. He's faithful to save us from our sin and the wrath of God. He's faithful to protect us from the attacks of the enemy. He's faithful to cause all things to work for our good and his glory. He's faithful to provide for our needs. He's faithful to always be with us. He's faithful to prepare a place for us in his Father's house. He's faithful to complete the work he began in us. Christ is faithful. Christ is also faithful to fulfill his promise of righteous judgment and condemnation for all those who continue to rebel against God and spurn the mercy and grace that is offered in the gospel. And that's what's recorded in the second half of verse 11. In righteousness he judges and makes war. He will be faithful to judge those who reject his atoning work on the cross, suffering God's wrath in their place, and that judgment, his judgment, will be righteous. It will be holy judgment. It will be no more and no less than what those who have rebelled against and rejected God deserve. Now, during Christ's first advent, the incarnation, wicked people, evil people judged him and unrighteously condemned him. Now in his second coming, he will judge. He will judge all those who continue in sinful, wicked rebellion against God. He will wage righteous war against all his enemies. Jesus is the righteous, conquering warrior and executioner of God's judgment and wrath against all ungodliness and sinful rebellion. I'll say it again. Jesus is coming, and He's not coming in peace. He's not coming to make peace. God's long-suffering patience God's long-suffering mercy and grace toward unrepentant sinners has come to an end. And now, Jesus is bringing righteous judgment and war. John's description of Jesus continues in verse 12. It says, His eyes are like a flame of fire. Even His eyes are flashing with the flames of righteous judgment, and nothing escapes His vision. Or his insight. He sees into the most hidden parts of the human heart and soul. So there will be no errors or injustice in his judgment. It will be righteous judgment. All sin and wickedness will be exposed. Charles Spurgeon said, Why are they like flames of fire? Why, first, to discern the secrets of all hearts. There are no secrets hear that Christ does not see. There is no lewd thought. There is no unbelieving skepticism that Christ does not read. There is no hypocrisy, no formalism, no deceit. He does not scan as easily as a man reads a page in a book. His eyes are like a flame of fire to read us through and through and know us to our inmost soul. Scripture also says this in Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And keep in mind, these are the same eyes that showed tenderness and compassion for children and those who were suffering. Same eyes that wept over Jerusalem and the death of Lazarus. And these same eyes now come with flaming righteous judgment. He is coming in righteousness to judge and make war. Jesus is coming in righteousness, he is also coming in glory. John says, on his head are many diadems or crowns, and the word diadem is the word uh, that spoke of a crown of royalty, a crown of authority. It was the crown of kings. And the fact that he wears many diadems or crowns means that he has collected all the crowns of all the kings, all the rulers, all the authorities, because this was the custom in the ancient world when a king was defeated, the victor received his crown. And the fact that he wears many diadems means that he is now the supreme and only king. All glory and honor is due to him alone. There is no other king besides King Jesus. He rules over all the earth. He rules over all creation. He is the glorious Lord of lords and King of kings, and the whole earth is full of his glory, as every knee will now bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's the fulfillment of Revelation eleven fifteen which says, when a loud voice from heaven announced, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. He comes in glory, and he is the Lord of glory. And these many diadems or crowns on his head are quite different from the crown of thorns that Jesus wore in his incarnation. When he was tortured and mocked, Jesus is coming again, and there will be no mocking this time. Only submission to Jesus, the ultimate, glorious, sovereign King of Kings. He is coming in glory. And the last part of the description in verse 12 says, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Only Christ knows that name. Wasn't revealed to John, hasn't been revealed to anyone else. But a lot of people speculate about what that name might be. I do like what uh, H.A. Ironside said about this unknown name. He said that it speaks of his essential glory as the eternal son concerning which he declared that no one knows the Son except the Father. And that unknown name also speaks of his holiness, his transcendence. He is infinitely separate and superior in power, perfection, and glory, far beyond our finite ability to know or comprehend. It's a name that only he knows. And then in verse 13, John says, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, some people believe that this blood may be um, the blood that Christ shed on the cross, atoning for sin, and that is a possibility. But most see it as the blood of Christ's enemies, and the context of the passage would also indicate that that is likely the meaning, the blood of judgment. The blood of war against all hardened rebels. It's also fulfillment of messianic prophecy, Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. This is a long text, but I do want to read it. it says, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Bozra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. The blood-staining Christ's robe is the blood of his enemies, is further supported by the second part of verse 15 in John's vision where the image is the same as the passage in Isaiah. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now, this may be primarily a spiritual reality, but just as Christ's physical blood was shed on the cross, paying the price for sin... The enemies of Christ who meet Him in this final battle will most assuredly suffer physical death and bleed physical blood. And then at the end of verse 13, we see that the rider on the white horse is clearly identified as Jesus Christ. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And that recalls the opening of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word of God, and as the Word, the logos of God, He is the divine personification or visible and tangible self-expression of God. He is God in the flesh and the divine agent expressing and carrying out God's will. He is coming in righteousness and glory to execute righteous judgment and establish His glorious rule on earth. He is coming in glory. He's also coming in grace. And there's a shift in verse 14 from John's description of Christ to a description of those who are with him when he returns to do battle on earth. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, as with other parts of John's revelation, there's some disagreement as to who these riders are. Uh, Some see them as the angels, the angelic host. Some see them as uh, the saints. Some see them as a combination of both. And the view that seems to be uh, most likely is that these armies are made up of the departed and raptured saints. First of all, because their clothing is white and pure, and that closely identifies them with the Lamb's bride in Revelation 19.8, whose clothing is also described as bright and pure. And another reason to see these armies as the redeemed saints recalls Revelation 17.14, in which the called, the elect, the faithful are alongside Jesus at the final battle against the beast and his forces. Now, it is likely that the angels will also be accompanying Christ and his redeemed cavalry because there are numerous passages that speak of the angels being with Jesus at his return. Uh, Matthew 16, 27, for example, says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So angels will accompany Christ at his return, but those mounted on the white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and pure, are most likely the redeemed saints, believers like you and I. And the purity of the clothing worn by these armies and the white horses they ride, that speaks of the purity, the righteousness, the holy character of the saints, declared pure and holy by the righteousness of Christ that covers them, and that was accomplished by the grace of God. But it also speaks of their glorified, sinless state finally conformed to the image of Christ, which also is by grace alone, not anything that we were or were able to accomplish apart from His grace. And these armies of saints and angels are following behind Christ and they don't have any swords, they don't have any spears, they don't have any weapons of any kind because they won't actually take part in the battle. They are non-combatant supporters of Christ, the warrior king who will wage war against the beast and his armies single-handedly. We may not be swinging any swords but we'll be front row witnesses to the battle to end all battles. And that is a gracious gift to be able to accompany Jesus, the glorious conquering king, as he returns to do battle and establish his kingdom on earth where we will, by his grace alone, also rule with him. He's coming in grace. And finally, he comes in victory. Verse 15, John gives a threefold description of Christ's judgment, his victorious conquest and rule over the nations and the people of the earth. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now the image of a sharp sword coming out of his mouth doesn't mean that he's spitting excaliburs all over the place. It's, It's a reference to his word. As the word of God his word has the power to create. His word has the power to sustain life, to give comfort, to give hope. But His word can also condemn. His word can destroy and kill. And this is also a clear fulfillment of Revelation 11:4, which says, in reference to the coming Messiah, He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. During his first advent, Jesus spoke words of life, calling men to repent and believe the gospel. But when he returns, he will speak, and his word will bring about death and destruction. His word will strike down the nations like a sword wielded in battle. Those who, be, who will be killed are those who continue in rebellion, hardened rebellion, who continue to reject Him as Savior and Lord. All those who meet Him in battle along with the beast of the battle of Armageddon, or as John refers to it in Revelation 16, 14, the great day of God the Almighty. And the Old Testament prophets called it Day of the Lord. The description of Christ's judgment, defeat, and destruction of the opposing armies then goes into greater, even more graphic detail. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This terrifying image of God's judgment, his wrath being poured out on his enemies. We saw that earlier, speaking about the blood that stains Christ's robe and the reference in Isaiah 63.3, I've trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. It's also in the description of the wrath of God That's in Revelation 14, 19, and 20. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. The metaphor of the wine press the crushing, the splattering of grapes is the blood of Christ's enemies, finally crushed, defeated, killed, and their blood poured out and staining his robes. Terrible as that image is, it is absolutely just. It is pure justice. It is absolutely righteous. And it is absolutely deserved. Christ shed his blood for us. And now, unrepentant rebels will shed their own blood for their sins. And then the statement that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is a reference to Christ's rule in the millennial kingdom where he will immediately judge, immediately punish any sin. And crush any rebellion. Everyone living in that earthly kingdom will be required to submit to his law and rule or face immediate consequences. And then finally, in the description of Christ returning on the white horse to judge and to make war, verse 16 says, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And this proclaims his unlimited power, his infinite glory and majesty, his decisive and total victory over all who oppose him. It declares his righteous rule and sovereignty over all people, all nations, all rulers, all of creation in the establishment of his kingdom. He is coming. In victory. Uh, In closing, as believers, the knowledge of his coming should drive us to our knees in constant prayer. For those who don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord. So that they don't meet him as their judge. His coming should lift our hearts and hope and joy, knowing that He will bring true and lasting justice and that we will rule and reign with Him on the earth. His coming should motivate us to obey all that our glorious King has commanded, especially to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations for their salvation. And for Christ's glory. And finally, knowledge of his coming should inspire us to worship continually before the throne. Now, if you're here this morning and you have not trusted Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, knowledge of his coming is a profound grace. Because the door of salvation is still open. And we would plead with you to turn from unbelief and disobedience. Trust in Christ's death on the cross to pay for your sins and follow him as Lord of your life. So that when he returns... It will mean joy and life for you and not judgment. Jesus is coming again. He's not coming as a baby, He's coming in righteousness, He's coming in glory, He's coming in grace. And he's coming in victory. Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, is coming.